You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. I got nothing going on. You got nothing going on. I need something to do. We need something to do. You can know by now that men in the Bugatti, he's a member of the Thanks for downloading another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast, your source for art, culture, politics, and religion. Serious conversation that tries not to take itself too seriously. If you like what you hear, go to iTunes and leave a nice review. You can also like our Facebook page for more content and conversation. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Do whatever that you like, do whatever, baby, cause I, oh, I don't care, yeah, yeah, it's alright, alright, yeah, 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 oh, yeah. Welcome, everybody. Danny Anderson here, Assistant Professor of English at Mount Aloysius College. Hope all is well with you now that progress has led us to dystopia. Uh, today, I'm joined by a couple of luminaries, uh, Nathan Gilmore, Associate Professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and co-host of the Christian Humanist Podcast. What's happening, Nathan? Oh, a bunch of stuff. I mean, because of Emanuel's goofy calendar that uh, Michael the Farmer and I have been talking about all semester, I am actually on my last day of finals, final exams. When this thing drops, final exams will be over. Nice. Nice. And then you're on uh, on your way to uh, another kind of dystopia, right? Um, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> called Disney. Let me just let me just name it. Um, <laughs> Anderson's not Anderson's favorite place, <laughs> but that's okay. I hope you have fun. Um, and by the way, I just I'm way late because of uh, the semester has been busy. I'm like behind on podcasts, but I just listened to the one on the penal colony that you guys did. Uh, that was awesome. I wanted to comment, but I'm in the middle of this bathroom remodel, and uh, <laughs> I haven't had time to do that. But it was really, really fun to listen to. I really enjoyed that one. So, Well, good, good. Yeah, Glad you good. enjoyed it. Yeah, and speaking of my bathroom remodel on Kafka, this is uh, like the <laughs> – <laughs> the trap that I've built under the sink is like a Rube Goldberg machine. This is this is where this thing is going, and so um, I'm almost done though. And then Anderson will be back to normal, whatever that means. Um, oh, and see, uh, Danny, you you are a brave man for taking that on. My uh, my wife just had new uh, countertops put in in our kitchen. Yeah, and I I, I said. Okay, how much does the plumber cost? I will pay it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll one-up you on that. I actually made my own countertop out of concrete. Um, and, oh, man. And carrying that thing across the house and, and getting it installed was a bear. So, um, yeah, this is uh, – I'll post pictures. Um, anyway. <laughs> Um, and joining me and Nathan today is Jordan Poss, a beloved regular on this show at this point. Jordan, how's it going, man? Uh, good. Busy, as, as I was saying beforehand. Got a – Sick little girl, grading craziness, lots of appointments, holidays coming up, and it's uh, it's all wonderful. Yeah, uh, listeners should know this is the end of the semester for, for most people. Not quite the end that it is for Gilmore, but it's getting close enough for the rest of us. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and so, yeah, we're a little, little haggard at this point. So, well, um, political correctness is a topic that we've been bantering about covering on the show for a while. And in the aftermath of Donald Trump's election, Nathan suggested it was time already. So, Nathan, let's start with some history. Uh, can you give us a little background on the term itself? Who started worrying about people's being politically correct, and why were they worried? And then we'll move on to Jordan and have a conversation. 
Well, the term itself is a Cold War artifact, but long before that, of course, I mean, if you go back even as far as the Ten Commandments or the Code of Hammurabi, there's always been a sense that certain kinds of speech are off-limits. Uh, so, for instance, in the Law of Moses, to curse one's father, to curse God, uh, to utter certain kinds of words, uh, often brings with it a death penalty, and that's, you know, a, a common theme across, you know, ancient Near Eastern law codes. Uh, so the idea is that speech itself has a certain power. Uh, there's a sense, you know, that runs all the way up into ancient Athens that rhetoric has a magical sort of power, you know, in the Phaedrus and to a lesser extent in the Gorgias. Uh, Socrates talks about it as a sort of semi-divine power to lead people's souls in this direction or that. Really that, you know, rolls on through into the Roman Empire, into the Christian era, all the way up to, you know, the era that we call the Enlightenment, where you get this sense that, you know, I should go ahead and say, for the sake of our medievalists in the audience, it's a notion inherited from the medieval university, uh, that speech should have a certain freedom to it. In other words, that uh, what people utter should have its own ability to do its work on people's minds, and that the government should be in the in the business not of keeping one kind of ideas suppressed and other kinds of ideas elevated, but to let the ideas themselves have a sort of contest out in the open air. And so that Enlightenment ideal certainly isn't uniformly adopted there, you know, in the 17th century, but it becomes uh, a sort of standard, especially by the 20th century and sort of the turn of the 20th century and the optimism about the liberalism and progress of the world. A lot of that gets attributed to the free exchange of ideas. Well, then the communist revolutions happen, and of course there are not, uh, a sing there's not a single communist revolution, but there's a number of them. Each of them has its own history and its own interest. And political correctness arises as a sort of revival of that notion in Maoist China and in Stalinist Soviet Union that there are certain kinds of speech uh, that are going to help people to follow along with the avant-garde, to enter into this communist consciousness, and in those contexts, there are dissidents who either escape or whose writings escape from Maoist China and Stalinist Soviet Union uh, that talk about this notion that the dangers in those regimes is not simply to actively oppose the regime, but also to speak in a way that is not politically correct. So the idea there is that within those regimes, because they are trying to institute a revolution, they're trying to change the way that human beings exist in the world, um, there was an anxiety in the leadership of the regime that certain kinds of speech would basically set back that progress that would subvert uh, what it is they were trying to do and that ultimately would doom the revolution to a counter-revolutionary force, which is, you know, sort of the inherent conservatism of language. Um, now, in the you know, 1960s, 1970s, it becomes a sort of term of style among the anti-Stalinist left uh, to talk about political correctness, not only in the Stalinist regime, but also in liberal regimes as things that are impolite or impolitic to say. Uh, and for those reasons, you know, uh, when we roll into the era where most of us think about that phrase, political correctness, it's already become somewhat a term of abuse. And in fact, I mean, its origins kind of have that, you know, uh, sense that this is something that someone else is imposing on us and hindering our freedom to speak. Um, 
Jordan, I mean, I, I, I realize I just, you know, covered, you know, 4,000 years of history in a minute and a half. <laughs> yeah. uh, are there any other sort of high points in the in the history of speech and law that you think we ought to think on? Yeah, before he does that, I like the uh, transition immediately from medieval to communist revolutions. Like, that was a big... <laughs> <laughs> I, I did have John Locke in the middle there. I want to note that. He left you lots of territory, so go ahead. <laughs> It's kind of bold leap through history that uh, podcasting can allow us to make. Uh, this had not occurred to me at all in show prep, but as you were talking, I thought of the gag rule from 1836. Uh, okay. Part of the yeah, part of the Pinckney resolutions introduced in Congress to uh, just stymie the amount of debate regarding the expansion of slavery in new territory. Um, simply just make the make the topic off limits, as you put it, it's impolitic, which is a Old, bordering on archaic word now, but I, th I think expresses a lot of the same anxieties. Um, just, just the idea that there are some, some things that are worthy of debate, but are so divisive and uh, so controversial that you want to avoid them. Um, and even just on a social level, I mean, you know, the gag rule is DC politics, uh, and which <laughs> hasn't changed too dramatically in 150 years, <laughs> but. Uh, just on a personal level, studying honor cultures, uh, particularly places like the Old South, the idea of fighting words, right? Yeah, the good, the good. idea that in, in in some sense you can almost be excused for a response if someone says a certain class of thing toward you. Mm -hmm. um, those, yeah, those that, are, that's the much uh, older phenomenon of the public insult. Right. And that's something that, you know, with the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, it really becomes an archaic term. Uh, that lives on in the South, as you know, but it, it right. stops being really part of legal culture the way that it was in the Middle Ages and really into the early modern period. Right. And that, that kind of adumbrates something that I was going to you know, see if we could work in later, which is uh, mm -hmm. the uh, a lot of the, the controversy around political correctness nowadays, I think, comes from the blurring to the point of oblivion of the distinction between the private and the political spheres where yeah. uh politically speaking like you point out and legally speaking you know the idea of fighting words and uh a insult to someone's honor is more or less rendered moot by something like the first amendment but social pressure peer pressure um the the concrete relationships that you have within the network of your people locally those can still exert a powerful influence on you to avoid fighting words because if you don't even though it is illegal, you might be challenged to a duel or struck down, and people will look the other way because you, in some sense, deserved it because of your speech. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. Uh, Danny, you got, you got anything? Well, I, I think I've exhausted most of what I've got to say there. No, that's good. And I just listening to the kind of history that we've talked about here, it's interesting to me how this phenomenon, if you want to call it that, is not – wholly a child of one political ideology it's mm -hmm. something that mm -hmm. has been put into use by um um by multiple uh people in uh, very uh, various positions of political power throughout history uh one uh listener towards the end of this we're going to uh take on some facebook comments that we had uh, mm -hmm. i i'd posted I'll, I'll explain that when we get there i'd posted a uh <laughs> uh, an article and asked for some uh, comments before we start recording, and we want to actually address some of those. But one of them had to do with uh, the kind of patriotism movement, uh, one that came in last night before <laughs> I went to bed. Uh, like, so people complaining about P Colin Kaepernick not 
standing for the national anthem. Uh, that is its own form of political correctness, really, uh, imposed by people who ostensibly oppose political correctness. Uh, and so uh, this is, I think, mm-hmm. one of the the what makes this topic interesting for me is that I don't think of it as something we can just bludgeon one uh, side with or the other. And so, um, yeah, I think that that's, uh, that history kind of illuminates that for me pretty well. Um, in, uh, in one sense, it's even kind of like, uh, Danny, you're in my conversation about conspiracy theories back at the end of the summer. Cause when I was first studying it, I thought, Oh, you know, conspiracies are the kind of the purview of particular fringe groups and maybe, you know, distinct political, in groups on, you know, particularly like the communist left and things like that. But the more and more I studied it over the years, the more I realized that, again, conspiratorial thinking is really internalized by everybody at this point. And so political correctness has a generally liberal flavor nowadays, but that that basic stance toward other people's speech and expression is, uh, you know, in some sense, we're all politically correct now. We just choose to be so about different things. But Um, it's mostly the term that we associate with liberalism, but the activity is not right. And and I think, right, right. It's political. I'm trying to be so disciplined and wait till we get to that part of the conversation. You guys are strip mining it before we get there. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) I just want to note this. (laughs) Yeah. I've already, I've already gone farther than I really intended to at this point. Sorry. Strip mining. Boy, talk about a hot political topic. I tell you. Um, um, well, Jordan, most of our listeners, miners will keep their clothes on. Jordan, uh, most of our listeners are going to know the term, not from its Cold War context, but from the Clinton years. Uh, How has the term political correctness evolved into a term of abuse in the age of call-in radio and other social media? Uh, I I actually specifically requested this this question when we were hashing out the show notes, and that's because this was my first experience autobiographically to the concept of political correctness. And I had... I grew up in a context in which a lot of people were listening to Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, when, when I was first politically aware was kind of his heyday, the uh, sort of transition from the George H.W. Bush years to the Clinton years. Um, and, uh, I mean, we had the T-shirts, you know, there, there, I remember in particular a T-shirt that was from the Limbaugh program that had this kind of litany of politically incorrect positions and beliefs on the back of it uh, that, you know, pro-life religious, you know, free speech, you know, pro-gun, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and furthermore, this, there, there was kind of a flourishing of this and I took it seriously at the time, but I was like eight. So I have no idea (laughs) what, I have no idea what the actual seed was that kicked this trend off, but the political correctness in my imagination and the way it's still used, I still see this a lot is almost a, description of this series of elaborate circumlocutions around potentially offensive labels. Mm -hmm. So uh, I even had a friend in college who on the college radio station um, would occasionally record politically correct versions of fairy tales in which, you know, the seven dwarfs were not seven dwarfs. They were, you know, vertically challenged men. (laughs) Um, That, that was the one that always got trotted out vertically challenged. Uh, um, I, the, the basic root of that, and, and I have, you know, I'm not exactly sure how what Nathan was describing from the Cold War transmogrified into this, mm-hmm. but the basic root is a, is a a completely laudable inclination toward just being polite, which of course shares a root with impolitic and political. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, just just being respectful in your discourse. And uh, I think it's striking that even pre-internet, right there in the final Gutter de Morong before the rise of the internet, there was a sense that society <laughs> – there was a sense that society was so big, so disorganized, and so atomized that already people were so detached from each other that we needed some kind of external means of control to keep people civil to each other. Uh, sometimes at the expense of free speech, which I think is – you know, again, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but I think we're headed toward that. Um, Danny, Nathan, y'all got – what would y'all say to that? I, I know I can't possibly have covered it the, um, as thoroughly as I, as I intended to. Well, first of all, I never, I, I never uh, anticipated Wagner would come up in this, but thanks for that. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> um, I've been feeling very Wagnerian lately. <laughs> I, I, that's, fair enough, that's fair enough. Yeah, I think you're right, but I mean the big contest here uh, really has to do with the complexity of the term, right? So, I mean, Jordan just hit you know, at least four different connotations of the term, uh, all of which, you know, kind of get thrown around interchangeably in conversation, even though the reference are very different, right? Mm-hmm. So you've got the politically correct version of, you know, rude terms, right? You know, and I mean, th- this really, I think, has its roots in, you know, Jesse Jackson's popularization of African-American. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you, you get, you know, sort of the mockery of that term in things like vertically challenged, follically challenged, you know, uh, short, bald people <laughs> now have their own terms, you know. Uh, where I think, you know, I would say uh, those aren't really fair comparisons, but they can be amusing comparisons, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Right. You know, having a term of respect for a racial or ethnic group ain't quite the same as not calling people bald, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Then you also have this notion that, you know, political correctness is an externally imposed politeness, and usually it's an externally uh, imposed and alien politeness, right? So in other words, you are making me be, you are making me act in a way that would be seen as polite at Yale or Harvard when mm. actually I'm a coal miner, mm. and that's politically correct. And yeah. then there's the politically correct that you noted that you know is um, certain subject matters that we avoid entirely because uh, you know the conversations that result aren't going to be pleasant at all. Mm-hmm. So I, I, what I like the most about your account, Jordan, is that you know you hit all of those things just kind of showing that, you know, when someone says that they stand against political correctness, usually in the background there, they are supporting something that you could reasonably and historically call political correctness, but, you know, from another position, right? So, I mean, you know, you might say, I oppose, you know, the term, you know, African-American or alternative lifestyle or whatever else, but you don't want people cussing around your grandma. Right. Unless right. you got my grandma, she cusses like a sailor, but that's that's, that's another that's another story entirely. But uh, Danny, I'm talking too much. I mean, what else is there to throw in here? Well, I'm thinking of um, a Clockwork Orange as you guys are talking, uh-huh. um, and, and I feel I mean this obviously that predates the Clinton years by quite a lot. But the central uh, the thing that I remember most about that movie is the priests in the book too. The priests. Um, uh, Meditation. So they've made this this horrible person um, 
behave through kind of external forces. Like he gets, they've programmed him so he gets physically sick every time he wants to, he has a violent thought or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So he can't Mm -hmm. actually perform things that are offensive to society. Uh, And the priest is kind of put off by this. Uh, I remember this from the book. I can't remember how much of this is in the movie. Um, But, uh, and the priest actually asked the question, like, does God want us to be good or to want to be good? Right. And and Mm -hmm. I think that that's Mm -hmm. that's a key distinction. Um, And when we're talking about the what we commonly would call political correctness now this sort of external regulation of speech yeah i feel like what we're doing is that sort of imposition uh without getting to the heart of the matter we're trying to create the artifice of a polite society rather mm-hmm. than a polite society uh and, and some of this is is fresh in my mind i'm teaching a class about Shirley Jackson and Flannery O'Connor this semester. And and yesterday we read three Jackson stories and all three of them work together very nicely to kind of critique this kind of artifice of polite society and the kind of Mm -hmm. rot that's really right behind the surface of that. Uh, It's really, I mean, if you haven't read Shirley Jackson, you really must. It's, (laughs) she's a really (laughs) wonderful writer. Um, And um, so this is what I'm thinking of when I think of political correctness as well. Uh, and so th- starting with the Clinton years, um, one of the recommendation I want to make at the end of the show has to do with that um, as a, a novel I want to recommend. Um, but before giving that away, when I think of the political correctness of the Clinton years, you sort of see I, I, the fruition, I guess, of this 80s academic discourse I think uh, Mm -hmm. becoming Mm -hmm. put into public play and Mm. it doesn't and I think it still goes on today I think when we talk about race and we talk about things like that people controversial issues like that people are who are complaining about so yeah, let me back up one second. With the the Trump voter, let's just the, the Trump, there's a real controversy on the left within the left about the Trump voter, whether we should be empathetic mm-hmm. towards them or just write them off as racist, right? And so mm-hmm. uh, a writer who I generally like, Jamel Bowie from uh, Slate, has totally gone off the deep end, I think here. Um, <laughs> and follow him, following him on Twitter, um, he's in conversation with this guy from Jacobin, uh, Connor uh, Kilpatrick. Uh, and uh, it's a hilarious sort of uh, passive aggressive debate that's going on on Twitter. But uh, Kilpatrick <laughs> comes from this sort of working, I mean, he's Jacobin magazine, right? And so he's, uh, he's coming from this like working class perspective that's minimizing the role of race. Bowie is like, utterly wanting to fixate exclusively on that, right? And and what mm-hmm. I feel like when I read Bowie is I see this like academic discourse about race that doesn't fit very neatly on the world outside of academia. Uh, okay. Yeah. And, and and so uh I feel like they're trying to kind of fit a square peg into a round hole when they're uh with the discourse mm-hmm. they're using that has to do with this political correctness when figuring out what to do with Trump voters, right? And, and so mm-hmm. um I feel like it, it, there's some sort of disconnect between uh, academia and real lived experience <laughs> that um, yeah. there's always that disconnect, of course. But I think that's part of why we see such a, a, a controversy around this term of political correctness. If you just say, I think we should all be polite to each other. I think very few people have that sort of would disagree with that. And people who use political correctness as, as a, as a, 
not as a devil term, but as a, as a aspiration, they would say, well, that's all it means. And, and I think people who are on the other side of that saying, that's not all it means. You're actually um, imposing yourself on my own kind of person here. So I, I mm-hmm. don't know. Nathan, Jordan, what do you guys think about that? Well, well I, I, go, go ahead, ahead Jordan. Oh, well, one, one observation that I had, and I think y'all put it into much clearer, less ambiguous terms than I did. I was kind of hitting around it. Uh, when I was talking about the atomization, you know, of society and some of, you know, mm-hmm. trying to find some kind of way to deal with some of those more deleterious effects, you know, with like having conversations with YouTube commenters, right? <laughs> uh, you know, Danny talking, about, Danny talking about artificially constructing a polite society, creating an artifice. And Nathan, your example of talking to your grandma, right? That's that, that's kind of what I was talk, uh, striving toward uh, in describing, you know, the way you talk to your grandmother. Is mm-hmm. something you can't always put into words, but if you examine it long enough, you could theoretically come up with a logical list of rules in the way that you address her communication toward her. And it has a lot to do with her behavior, uh, the things that upset her. You know, there's some topics you wouldn't want to bring up, um, mm-hmm. some topics that you willingly would and you would enjoy talking about, certain words and pieces of vocabulary that you would use. And we take this with us to everybody that we talk about. There, you know, there are spheres of conversation that I, my wife and I get into every day that I would never bring up with my parents or, mm-hmm. you know, a stranger on the street. And yet at the same time, there are things that I talk about to 30 strangers in a classroom that I would not bring up at the dinner table. So mm-hmm. all of these things are organic to the concrete relationships that we have with other people that we interact with in our own real life. And when those relationships break down, I, th- I think we intuitively sense the loss of those boundaries, and I think mm-hmm. political correctness is an attempt to recreate some of those in an artifice like Danny was saying. Right, right. And to follow up on that, Jordan, I think that one of the things that the attempt to enforce that kind of vocabulary on the Internet misses is that the graduate school ecosystem is itself a social environment, right? right. Uh, you know, I mean, if you've ever met a humanities professor of conservative bent, uh, and, if, and if you've never met one, I mean, listen to some Christian Humanist Radio Network shows, you'll run into some. Uh, you'll note that when they use these phrases, they often do so with a raised eyebrow or with air quotes or, you know, something like that, uh, mm-hmm. to where you can tell that, you know, uh, the development of a certain kind of vocabulary is part of the cost of ad- admission, if you will, into that right. sphere that we call the academy, Right. At right. least in the humanities, I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to generalize too broadly, uh, but you know, even w- within those circles, there's a certain share of the people uh, who use those terms as a an entry ticket without really having internalized it. So, I mean, the right. sort of utopian experiment of you know the social sciences and humanities in grad school is: can we invent a way of speaking and writing and thinking? that will eliminate some of the injustices that our linguistic patterns have wreaked on the world. Um, And, you know, in certain circles, not universally to be sure, they are part of what it takes to get into those circles. And I'll go ahead and add, just in case I sound too um, subversive here, there are certain of those vocabularies that I think are really helpful, right? I mean, when I talk to Mm -hmm. my own undergrads and I use the, universal personal pronoun i'll usually say she or he and again it's not because you know i fear that my you know shakespeare and feminism professor is lurking around the corner waiting to correct me (laughs) if i don't 
but it's because I think it's an interesting habit of thought to invite my students into. Hmm. And there again, I mean, there's a social ecosystem, right? I am issuing right. an invitation to students. And, and Danny, I, I think that that's one of the reasons why political correctness becomes a term of abuse is when there is a threat either of something abstract like shame or something more concrete like professional, uh, you know, censure or even professional, you know, real life paycheck consequences that goes along with violating this sort of utopian community. I mean, is that, does that distinction make some sense to you, Danny? It does. Um, yeah. And I'm actually reminded as you were talking about what the terms you use in class. I mean, I do that sort of thing too all the time. And, and it's not because I fear I'm going to get in trouble, right? I, I, mm -hmm. I mean, frankly, nobody really cares what I do, right? <laughs> I'm not important enough <laughs> to get in trouble. Uh, and so, <laughs> but, uh, but, but it's, I just want to be polite to people, right? And, and so mm -hmm. I, I, to me, the motivation, so the end result looks politically correct. Um, to someone mm -hmm. who's against political correctness, but the motivation behind it isn't to kind of check off the the boxes of virtue that that a good citizen is supposed to check off, right? It's just, mm -hmm. I, well, I don't know enough about these people on a personal level, and so I, I want mm -hmm. to kind of be magnanimous in ways that I can be through language. And so, uh, right. to me, I, I I might appear to be politically correct. I don't necessarily think that of that as a bad term. <laughs> I think of that as mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when I'm do when I'm doing that, I'm thinking of it as me just trying to to be generous to people. Uh, and, right. and so that's how I that's how I kind of approach it. And as you were talking yeah. too, I remember you were talking about the the especially academia. We we've been kind of going on this and we'll do more about that. But Oh yeah, yeah. A, a couple of years ago when Colbert was still Colbert, uh, <laughs> he, he got in trouble um with uh which is kind of ironic cuz it really wasn't Colbert. But anyway, uh, but uh he got in trouble uh, with not really, but there was a, a someone he made some kind of joke making fun of conservatives, but he used sort of an Asian stereotype to to make the joke and i can't remember mm -hmm. any of the details mm -hmm. oh yeah but there was a, a a twitter hashtag movement that lasted like 13 minutes called cancel colbert i think is what it was called oh yeah yeah and, mm -hmm. and, and the person who was behind that i i read an interview with her in defending this kind of because everybody's like what's wrong with you she, he's on your side like what are you, he's making yeah. a joke and, <laughs> and, and uh and, and all the jargon that she was reproducing with no control of, it was clearly like she sat through a semester of a gender studies class and mm -hmm. was reproducing the jargon from this very distinct academic discourse and trying to make it fit on like the Colbert show. And it just, it, she looked ridiculous in doing it. Like it just, it's, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it, it just didn't work and no one took it seriously. Uh, and so I, I feel like that's another example of academia. Frankly, I mean, it, it, all the accusations about academia and the ivory tower and being cloistered. I mean, to a degree it's true. And, and linguistically, mm -hmm. particularly, I think that we do mm -hmm. develop discourses that we become very sure of. And it's like, we haven't read Bourdieu, like, uh, who, like <laughs> if you've ever read Bourdieu, <laughs> it, 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 like, that, that's the funniest line so far this episode. <laughs> we might not stop it. <laughs> Academics don't know how to talk to the public. It's like, we haven't read Bourdieu. <laughs> I'm going to get there. I'm, I'm talking to, the public. I'm gonna, so Bourdieu, 
Bourdieu was like all about investigating the ac- academia as its own social setting, right? Uh, and, and we read him, and, and we understand that uh, what he was identifying are the, the what he calls habitus, these sorts of uh, uh, practices that make one included in the in the community, right? And so we know that there's an artifice to academia because we teach it, uh, and in at the grad school level at least, and yet we don't remember that when we go in when we take that academic discourse into the public and i think that that's uh right uh that's what's yeah. interesting to me and i love Bourdieu. well and I, and I think this is the strange hybrid child of publisher parish culture yeah. and social mm-hmm. media because i mean i i think that you know especially in the obama years as facebook and twitter and you know other social media become ubiquitous you get a whole bunch of people who are speaking in ways that normally would only appear in social science and humanities journals but bringing that out to a much broader public, including the auto mechanic they went to high school with. And, you know, when those people hear those things without having the desire to be initiated into that social sphere that we call academia, it comes across as incredibly insulting. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I'm not going to draw a, a direct parallel, although I'm going to get accused of drawing a direct parallel. So I just heed my prediction here. But I mean, it, it's, it points to the fact that politeness has content to it. In other words, you know, um, in the 1940s in the South, you know, it would have been the polite thing to call a black person colored, right? Because there were less polite alternatives. Right. Mm-hmm. In the 21st century, that is a, it, amazingly insulting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's not simply that you have a desire to be polite, but that you are at least to some extent, aware or unaware of the content of what counts as politeness in a given social moment. Right. Does that make some sense? Jordan, I'm, I'm rambling on here. Help me no, out. No, 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 that, that, no. <laughs> I think that makes perfect sense. Like, like you said, there's content to it, and it is, again, a real politeness is driven by an awareness of your audience. And I, I think mm-hmm. one of the reasons there's such a crisis with you know PC nowadays is because Especially if you're plugged into social media, you have an audience all the time. You how do yeah, how do you yeah. how do you adapt what you're saying to theoretically everyone? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, you know. Again, to go back to your grandma, you know your grandma when you're talking to her. You know how not to talk to her. Right. You can't you can't know everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, one other thought that I, I thought Danny brought up really well was this kind of not inside joke, but this kind of in-group specialized vocabulary of academics. A um, mm-hmm. uh, liberal writer named Freddie DeBoer, I don't know if y'all saw some of his tweets in the aftermath of the election, but he was simply incensed at the loss to Donald Trump, but he largely blamed it on the left for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about. And he was, you know, in issuing this re- <laughs> honestly really moving Jeremiah ad, particularly, uh, specifically addressing things like you know, go ahead and double down on your academic ease, all your on your specialized vocabulary. Keep accusing people who have no idea what these terms mean of, you know, gaslighting and dog whistling, um, mm-hmm. which, which, you know, to, to use your mechanic example, if you were just shooting the breeze with the mechanic and he said something that to you that he may not say to someone else mm-hmm. um, that was maybe questionable if he were addressing, you know an auditorium of several thousand people or the internet. Yeah. Uh, and, <laughs> right. And you were to accuse him of using a racist dog whistle that could have, you know, if it's depending on how well, you know, him that may or may not have actually been the case, but he will probably be insulted because you're treating him like a, you know, a lab specimen. Um, right. Right. When 
again, human life is not that cut and dry. I don't know. Does any of that make sense? That was kind of a... Oh, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think the term racist itself is yes. a perfect example of this because in yep. the social sciences and humanities, racist comes to name a sort of sometimes unconscious and even unwilling attitudes mm -hmm. uh, towards, you know, sort of grand systemic realities. Right. When for, you know, most of the folks I talk to on a day-to-day -day basis when I'm coaching Little League Baseball, racist means KKK. Right. It means people who don't, you know, have black players on their baseball teams who don't right. coach and, you know, go out for beers afterwards with their Mexican friends who also coach mm -hmm. Little League, right? So, right. I mean, for, for them to see, you know, this gigantic hunk of the Internet saying, you're all racist, you're nothing but racist, and the only reason you voted for Trump is because of your racism, that is true within academic discourse, mm -hmm. but without that formation of a vocabulary – it's a complete failure of communication. Yep. Right. And sort of like we were talking about the, uh, the way all of these four or five or 50 things that we all label political correctness have blurred beyond being able to parse them or being able to mm -hmm. distinguish between them. I'll still try. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and <laughs> did a magnificent job. Uh, racist. Um, years and years ago, speaking of talk radio, I used to listen to a guy out of Atlanta named Neil Bortz who, yeah. um, had a deliberately prickly demeanor and um, mm -hmm. kind of delighted in what we would now call trolling. Yeah. And I, one and of the things li I listeners back, back when I listened to this, I'm significantly older than Jordan, but uh, I liked him less than I liked Rush Limbaugh. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I can, I can understand that. I, I didn't really agree most of the time or a lot of the time with either of them, but I did listen to at least Bortz cause he was inter entertainingly inflammatory, which I, I now mm -hmm. repent of. But uh, one of the things that I thought he was actually kind of useful habit was that when taking an antagonistic caller who accused him of racism, he tried Socrates-like to get them to define what they were talking about. Uh -huh. And, you know, what, what he would repeatedly point out was that we use terms like prejudice, bigotry, and racism all completely interchangeably with, all, you know, we've, we've melded all of these into, again, essentially a giant devil term. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you can simply label anybody with that, and if you can make it stick even a little bit, that's, you know, the scarlet A that will have you driven out of the community. Precisely. Well, this is awesome. And actually, it's a nice transition into the next question. Um, I want to zoom into the field of higher ed. Uh, specifically, Alan Bloom's Closing of the American Mind is kind of a key text. It's almost like a source text in this discussion. Uh, and, <laughs> oh, sure. And to this day, how you think of that book probably situ situates you in the PC is good, PC is bad spectrum. Uh, what are the issues swirling around that book and political correctness in general in higher ed? Uh, who are we on? Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a few things. That, first of all, it's been a good, gosh, eight or ten years since I read that book, so I'm, I'm going off of distant memory here. Uh, as you know, we've all three said, we're closing in on the end of the semester, so rereading Alan Bloom was not on my <laughs> <laughs> schedule this week. But a couple things from that book that stick in my memory. One was his response to the, uh, the student riots of the late 1960s. Uh, and his big objection to them, and it's one that in an interesting way gets echoed in Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, you're welcome, Danny, uh, is that in a protest culture or in protest reasoning, the idea is that you're not out to convince people who disagree with you to agree with you. 
so therefore the sort of syllogistic reasoned arguments that you know folks like Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas and John Locke valued so much really aren't the currency of the realm mm-hmm. uh, but instead it is systematic nonviolent discomfort and the problem that both of those writers have with it is not that, that it is inherently morally wrong, but that when it becomes the mainstay of the diet and when it becomes exclusive of reasoned argument, uh, what you end up with is a sort of, um, for lack of a better term, I mean, you know, just a contest of unreasoning forces rather than human beings discoursing with each other. Mm-hmm. And again, this is where, you know, the difference between entering into graduate school and learning that vocabulary versus having that vocabulary thrown at you over Facebook really does make a difference because the sense that I got from Bloom is that certainly there's room for learning to speak about things differently. Uh, But when it becomes a situation where instead of inviting people into that vocabulary, you are shutting down their campus so that they can't have classes or instead of, you know, inviting people to consider the implications of their speech, you are publicly calling them names so that they become devil figures like Jordan was talking about, invoking Richard Weaver and, you know, Kenneth Burke and groovy dudes like that. Um, (laughs) But uh, when that becomes the mainstay, then you have really forsaken an American mind at all. And I mean, I think that's really... Uh, the way that I read Closing of American Mind, that's how the American mind gets closed. It's not because of the content of liberal thought. Bloom himself, after all, was a registered Democrat. But it's when reason discourse gives way to protest as the primary means to get things done. Now, the other thing that I remember uh, from that book is that, you know, as a sort of act of, you know, resistance, and I love this part of the book, and I, I still get in trouble with people who hate Alan Bloom because I still... <laughs> love this part of the book, is he got a, a cluster of students together, and they had secret meetings where they would read and discuss Plato's Republic together. And I thought, oh, what a wonderful way to resist the culture of protest, to you know engage in this book that actively invites you to refute its own ideas as it's presenting them. <laughs> so, uh, uh, Jordan, what other bits of Closing the American Mind are worth thinking on here? Uh, I am familiar with this book. I'll, I'll just say at the outset, I am familiar with it, but I have not read it. It's okay. somewhere, somewhere in the middle of my, you know, one mile high to read stack. Uh, how, uh, just as a tangent though, uh, uh-huh. one one book I'm a little bit more familiar with is God and Man at Yale by William F. Buckley. Right. Oh, see, uh, I've not read that one. So educate us. Well, it's uh, it's well, I, I'm just I'm just kind of wondering here. A lot of what Buckley was talking about in that book was this kind of proto-politically correct kind of you know at least in the way that he describes it sort of super godless and um inclined toward hedonism you know very closed off kind of rarefied community of academia that basically exists for its own self um do you see again not having read bloom but do you see buckley in any way kind of anticipating some of what bloom is arguing or am i talking about apples and oranges here Danny, what do you think? I do. Um, uh, yeah, I think Buckley. That Buckley book is sort of almost. I mean, he's the creator of conservatism as we know it in the American mm-hmm. political world. I mean, maybe Coyle mm-hmm. Neal over at City of Man would, <laughs> would, would certainly be able to say, speak to that more more truthfully than I am. But to my mind, I think of him as the person who it was the intellectual force behind 
a line, a way, a way of approaching academic questions that leads to Alan Bloom, right? And, and so, no, mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. the the, uh, the neoconservatism that you kind of see the roots of in Buckley, um, Bloom is certainly a part of. And no, I do think that those books are related uh, because they they identify the university, whatever that means, uh, as <laughs> as a center of kind of liberal thought control, right? Uh, and liberal mm-hmm. um, thought policing. And so, no, I think that those two books do go together um, nicely. And the Yaleys of Buckley's generation were going to be the people in cabinet positions in, you know, the Kennedy and Johnson administrations and eventually in high office mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s. So, I mean, it's, again, I, I'm less familiar with Bloom, more familiar with Buckley, although it's been a while. Yeah. Uh, right, so that, right. that was just kind of something that popped up in my mind in, yeah. in going through the show notes, and I was curious about that. But, um yeah, Nathan, I, I think the process that you're describing through Bloom is we're seeing a lot of the fruits of now, especially as you were talking about with these kind of unearned insistences on using these rarefied vocabularies. Um, mm-hmm. look, just do a Google search for cis-normative sometime and see what kind, <laughs> see what yeah. kinds of – well, I, this is impolitic, but just see what kinds of crazy things that you can come up with. Um, the, you know, these specialized vocabularies that are being torn out of their academic context, however justifiably or not, and then reapplied, uh, as a form of protest. I mean, I think protest is central to a lot of the politically correct movement now, especially as it has become, um, as you were pointing out easier, uh, protest is easier than dialectic, uh, actually Mm -hmm. sitting down and debating an opponent like. Thomas Aquinas would have, or Dominic and the Cathars, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that is difficult, and you've actually got to engage your opponent. Uh, if you just block the freeway, you get attention, you get the name out there, you can, you know, wave a sign that has a hashtag on it, and now, now that's moved even into the even more easy form of protest and virtue signaling, which is, you know, the hashtag campaign, slacktivism. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and then real, real quick, Jordan, just in case our listeners aren't familiar with it, because I had to look it up. What's virtue signaling? Oh, vir- sorry. <laughs> uh, yes, that virtue signaling is almost a um, almost its own politically correct kind of term of abuse. Now, it's the mm-hmm. general concept that in some way you are sort of passive aggressively signaling that you are above some other kind of issue, but and that you are on the right side, but you are not opening it up for debate. Mm-hmm. Um so, for instance, I mean, you know, uh, I'll, I'll, t- I'll take one that's relatively inert because it was more than 10 minutes ago. But the uh, <laughs> hashtag, you know, bring back our girls. Yeah. Um, no, nobody that I know of actually joined, um, you know, uh, joined the army in order to participate in UN campaigns in Africa. Nobody, you know, joined the Peace Corps. Uh, it was e- much, much easier to signal your virtue by very, very self-consciously and self-righteously making this big deal out of an issue that you were otherwise going to do nothing about, if, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, virtue signaling is itself a slippery term, as is, again, some of the others that I brought up disparagingly, like, you know, the dog whistle, um, things yeah, like yeah. that. I yeah, think- and, and vir- virtue signaling is kind of that public display of outrage, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so it becomes immune to, again, reason dialectic, because how dare you dispute that I have these feelings? Right. And uh, the feelings is, is imp- especially important. And I mean, my own sympathies are with the conservative side of this, but they are prone to it as well in their own ways. Oh, but certainly, see, certainly. 
seeing uh you know seeing the protesters referred to as snowflakes right and um having having run across in study of some big controversies that i see swirling around and know nothing about and so i actually bother to look it up you know for my sins Mm -hmm. uh what you often see in response to the you know the kind of controversial topic of the week is people reading an article sharing it and then launching immediately into an autobiographical essay about their response to the article before ending with the hashtag campaign and the more elaborate the more pathetic you can make yourself look uh Mm -hmm. um i i I won't go into any specific examples, I guess. I I want to keep it pretty broad because you can see it, again, in a lot of cases. But Mm -hmm. I I remember seeing particular news stories shared by people, and, you know, they go into enormous, like, Emersonian detail about their mental state (laughs) and how, you know, they are crying, tears are streaming down their face. They are trembling so hard with rage that they can barely type, (laughs) even though they've got this, like, thousand-word screed. Um, (laughs) All of which is supposed to signal that because of the intensity of their feeling that feeling is in some sense rationally unquestionable mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which again we want to show deference to people's feelings that is simply politeness but that is not <laughs> oh lord I'll, I'll go ahead and say it that's not a trump card <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> well and, and i think that's where you know alan bloom's contention early in closing of the american mind that every student you run across is a relativist yeah really comes to play because, I mean, on first blush, you would look at those folks and you'd say, well, no, I mean, these are the most convinced absolutists I've ever met. <laughs> but, I mean, they are relativists insofar as it is their own personal emotional experience that gives things validity. Right. There's, there's a dec- decreasing sense that there is a sort of shared, rational, common ground on which you could dispute it and come out on the other side realizing you were wrong before without therefore sacrificing your own personal identity. Right. And that's, that's maybe speaking about again, uh, political correctness and higher ed and this kind of, um, almost solipsistic attitude. Uh, one of the most difficult things about teaching history is encouraging the students not simply to jump in and condemn the figures that I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and I try very, very hard to put them sort of into this historically imaginative state as we're going through it so that even if they dislike a person, like when, like when we talked about monuments, you know, John C. Mm-hmm. Calhoun or uh, Thomas Jefferson or somebody like that, uh, or medieval churchmen who are okay with the basic idea of the Inquisition, think, things of that nature, um, encouraging them to see these people within their own context so that they can understand why they reached the conclusions that they did even if they disagree with them, rather than simply saying, he burned a book, he's evil, he owned slaves, he's evil. You know, I personally disapprove of this. I recognize these as, again, politically incorrect attitudes for today, and so I can label and then disregard these figures from the past. That's a, that's an uphill climb every day in class. I do think, though, that if you're talking about relativism, to step back just a little bit, um, mm-hmm. I, don't, I mean – I would say this is a problem more on the right than the left at this point, frankly. Um, and, mm-hmm. and, and within the evangelical church, the folks who are supporting Trump from a Christian perspective mm-hmm. to, are you are ignoring everything they've ever said about electoral politics, um, yeah. about, mm-hmm. about like us, like grounded assumptions about electoral politics in my lifetime they totally now don't mm-hmm. matter, right? Uh, and, and, and so talk about relativism. like I, I think that mm-hmm. That it, if it if it 
perhaps started on the left. I mean, it has infected everybody at this point. And I think oh, sure, it's, sure. it's, it's yeah. maybe because the right had no tolerance for it. It's worse for them now. Maybe the infection is worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like the, uh, the right is, uh, <laughs> uh, is utterly, um, relativistic. Um, and you can call it pragmatic if you like. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, tell me the difference between those terms. I, I don't know what they are. Right. Um, and yeah. I, I realized that was a rhetorical question, but I am going to attempt. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I, I think what you're describing, Danny, is a species of hypocrisy, but you are still not making a relativist argument because mm-hmm. you assume that the people listening to this show share with you a common sort of base assumption that hypocrisy as a disposition towards life is not as good as integrity, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think that, you know, what we've got there is Who's a the relativist. I think this is what Bloom means by relativism. Yeah. And this is something that I've seen from right wing responses to the anti-Trump protests is the idea that, you know, OK, uh, just let the left continue, you know, insulting, you know, auto mechanics and coal miners all they want. Because after all, what really matters is they're driving away voters. Yeah. There's not much of a sense that, you know, okay, there is a, there are better ways and worse ways to have conversations as human beings. It's basically conceding at the outset that everything can be reduced to terms of vote getting and vote losing. I mean, that's another sense of, you know, the the phrase God term in Kenneth Burke. Yeah. Um, So that... uh, when everything can be boiled down to that, then certain things like intellectual virtue, like Aristotle would recognize it, become non-entities because they can't be bought and sold in terms of vote-getting and vote-losing. I think that's the kind of relativism that Bloom's pointing to. I think the hypocrisy that you're pointing to is worth noting, but it's not identical with it. Mm, I see Mm. that. I see that. Yeah. Um, A couple things, though. I wanted to kind of... I mean, you guys... Left. I have a, t- a ton of notes, and I'm sure I'm gonna. This might not be very well organized. Uh, I want to get out <laughs> a few responses, though. Uh, at the beginning uh, of our discussion about Bloom, it is important, I think, to understand the folks who don't uh, accept Bloom on face value because of his utter rejection of multiculturalism as a right. uh, as a. Uh, as appropriate for education, right? And so, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's a fair critique of that book. I mean, I, I happen to enjoy the humor of that book as much as anything else. I think it's a very funny book to read. There's a mm-hmm. lot of great zingers in that book, and, and it's 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 also very thought provoking. And I like it more than people would think a person like me would like that book. Let me just say, <laughs> um, um, so I, I do like that book, but I also totally get the. Um, uh, the suspicion of his, I mean, this is like the quintessential white guy, right? Uh, like punching down is, is all to reuse all these um, liberal terms of political correctness. And, uh, <laughs> and I think that that's what it is, even though as, um, Saul Bellow revealed after his death, he was a gay man himself. Right. And so, um, and uh, so, mm-hmm. um, but that, that I, I do get that critique of the book is that it's too dismissive of diversity, uh, as, appropriate for higher education. And, and I, I tend to mm-hmm. agree with that, uh, th- with that critique of that book. I also think what was interesting when you were talking about his um, analysis of the kind of uh, modes of discourse and how in his day people were not relying on more kind of uh, logical arguments to kind of sway uh, uh, listeners. 
um, to me, I'm going back to my rhetoric one class here. <laughs> like uh, we call mm-hmm. it's our what's what we call our freshman comp class. Uh, it, you have this is a, we live in a day now, and this is left and right. This is talk radio is based on this. It's a pathos driven um, uh, discourse that we we oh, engage sure, in, sure. right? And so you achieve mm-hmm. ethos through pathos uh, in our mm-hmm. in our yeah. uh, to use the basic kind of uh, rhetorical terms instead of logos, right? And and that the yeah. virtue signaling that uh, uh, Jordan is talking about is obviously a, a left version of that, but the talk radio, um, what we call mansplaining uh, t- tendency, uh, <laughs> is, is another version of that, though. It's a pathos-driven uh, form of discourse, discourse that um, eliminates logos to, to a too large a degree. Uh, and so, um, and also one last thing, <laughs> just to, um, I don't think it's quite fair to equate the safety pin, I mean, the, the safety pin, phenomenon that's going on right now and who knows how long this will last it's a virtue signal i think uh i think because it's it's (laughs) rather it doesn't ask you to do much except proclaim your uh goodness to to the world right and that's basically all Mm -hmm. you have to do uh is state that you're a good person uh and, and in that way i feel like a lot of in the way that it's similar to an evangelical voter. Just well, I'm against abortion, so I'm a good person, right? And so, uh, mm. and I vote that way. I, that's a that's a, a right version of of uh, virtue signaling. But mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. Yeah. sticking to the left, the I do think that the problem with it is that it's hollow. It, it doesn't have any kind of activity to it, and so blocking the highways. I think that's a little different. I, I, I think that we should bring back the pitchforks and torches as a form of political discourse. Uh, in America. That's, that's what's the only thing that's missing is pitchforks and torches. So uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm all for that. Um, I, I went to Ace Hardware and I picked up some myself. So, um, um, <laughs> so you keep your safety pin. I'll take my pitchfork. Um, so um, that's okay. Um, and actually what we've been talking about is a good lead into the next question because it, it, we're moving into politics now. So let me kind of get into that. Uh, let's pan over to politics after our zoom into education here. Uh, mm-hmm. The Democratic Party, before I do this, I just remembered something I wanted to say. <laughs> interrupt no, myself. Um, I, I was a little late grading the last paper for my freshman comp class. So I finally finished that this week. And it happened to be they were writing a summary response to a New Republic article. And, and you know, if you follow me on Twitter, I have some beefs with the new the new new republic as i like to call it uh but uh there was an excellent article called something about why the pc left is what the pca left is doing wrong in language debates by a guy named aaron hanlon and they were to respond to this and i thought and this was written before the election and before all of this current conversation about political correctness um and, and i think he was really right on from the left, I mean, he's sort of a person from the left critiquing the left uh, and its use of its abuse of political correctness. And he was largely talking about um, the the outweighed um, uh, prominence that things like microaggressions and safe spaces and all that sort of thing have in some college um, atmospheres. And so that was a really good essay. I'll probably put a, a a link to the show to that in the show notes, but I did want to mention mm-hmm. that. And fortunately, because I was so late grading that, I graded it this week when I was prepping for the show. So it was very helpful that I was um, that I was a jerk in getting that that paper to that. <laughs> so, um, all right, so to, on to my next question now. So uh, let's pan over to American politics. The Democratic Party is having a bit of a come to Jesus moment, uh, uh, and a lot of it has to do with rethinking the emphasis on things like political correctness, as that article I just mentioned said, and, identi- mm-hmm. and identity politics. Uh, Jordan, let's start with you and then move to Nathan. What role do you think those things really had in this election? 
Uh, I was much more confident in my answer to this the other day when we first got the show notes. And I, I, uh, the more I have read, because there, there are just a legion of think pieces on exactly this topic, uh, I honestly don't know. I, I think it was a significant factor, but as, as I've gone on the record before, I, I don't like monocausal explanations for anything. Um, so just just speaking about the political correctness thing, I um, I think it was a significant factor, if not the, but not necessarily the factor. I, I don't know what the factor was. But there are a bunch of them at play, and I, I think political correctness was an important one. And I think that had a lot to do with the, what, what we could call the base. Um, mm. uh, a lot of hay has been made of uh, Trump's appeal to white voters. Um, I, I'll just say at the outset, and I'm, I'm not intending this as a virtue signal, but it, you know, it may come across that way. Uh, I was never Trump from the beginning. Um, you know, Frank Bruni, who we'll talk about in a minute, had a piece over a year ago castigating evangelicals for you know being interested in trump and i was on board with that from the beginning um so i honestly did not follow trump's rhetoric that closely because i was uninterested my my interest was in finding somebody else that i could potentially vote for um which i eventually did more or less to my satisfaction but uh, as as for how trump actually did motivate his kind of white base within the republican party um this is where a lot of that kind of gaslighting and dog whistling language comes in um and i think terms like that which you know i, I like to hate on both of those terms because i'm ga- gaslighting in particular i'm really not sure what mental image i'm supposed to get of that i always <laughs> i was in envision in, excuse me envi- envision some kind of like victorian era lamplighter I, I don't anyway uh using terms like that to describe the rhetorical stylings of this guy with his particular brand uh and then transferring that consternation onto the the people at the bottom the people actually voting for him um this has has been an ongoing thing i was alluding to you know limbaugh 20 years ago um harshing on political correctness and so that has not gone away that's something especially older voters will have remembered for a very long time will have internalized uh I've got myself a little bit of experience with it. I, rem- I remember getting into a little bit of a mini flame war with a guy one time. Uh, I had said something critical of Obamacare, and uh, he just instantly called me a racist. I mean, I was I was making political points. I was I was attempting to use logos in you know those rhetorical terms. Uh, he instantly tries to zing me with a double term, right? And uh, that deeply annoyed me because I was trying to be reasonable. Um, and for people who are average voters uh, and, you know, we we could spend all day talking about, you know, what is the average voter, but for people who at least conceive of themselves as the average voters who are concerned about their welfare, concerned about the world as it is concerned about their jobs um, to have their interests and their concerns constantly critiqued as if again, they are lab specimens has built into a kind of accumulated pile of just insulting attitudes toward them uh maybe there are people for instance these white voters who are not white supremacists but they would at least like to be treated as if their concerns mattered um they don't want to say hey you know in my own hometown we had a factory right that made, that made elastic for underwear bands and it closed uh you know they outsourced that job boxers um, I, bl- I blame boxer right. shorts 
<laughs> well, the uh, you know to to all the people in my small Appalachian community who are now out of work, is it racist for them to regret that factory going overseas? Um, they want jobs, they need jobs, and they would like to stay in the place that they grew up. You know, this it's not tenable for a lot of them to go to a big city and you know get a graphic design job at you know in a shop over a coffee shop. Uh, <laughs> I'm describing Greenville there. Um, I, I'm ra- I'm rambling a little bit here, but I, I really think that a lot, and I've seen a lot of this uh, from speaking anecdotally at this point. People that I know who did vote Trump, um, I honestly have to say I was disappointed in some of the people that I know and love and grew up with who did vote for him despite his glaring personal flaws. Uh, some of those Limbaugh listeners when I was a kid instilled in me that a person's personal character matters because of bill clinton and to see them abandon that for what looked like strictly politically pragmatic ends was uh you know a very deep problem for me um it's something that was in, in another common pc term troubling uh <laughs> it's problematizing but yes. yeah yeah it's problematic oh so, gosh uh, yeah so we should have a PC, we should issue a pc bingo card just for this episode <laughs> Um, there's the center square. So, uh, you know, to talk about, for instance, uh, Trump voters as, you know, misogynists and racists, uh, most of the most vocal supporters of Trump that I know are actually women. And somehow or other, they were comfortable with voting for him and supporting him and encouraging other people to vote for him, despite those glaring character flaws. And they were genuinely insulted to be lumped in with misogynists and racists because those things do not in fact, characterize them personally and concretely. Uh, so I, I've seen a couple of people talk about this being kind of the, uh, I think it was a writer from Cracked, actually, which it, it's amazing where you have to go to get journalism now. <laughs> it's um, true. Uh, is not bad uh, right now. <laughs> no, uh, you can look it up. I can't remember the uh, title of the article. I think it was Five Reasons Half of America Lost Its Effing Mind. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's, that's the one. That's the one. Yeah, by a guy named David Wong. And he was talking about... Um, um, I, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, he called it the brick through the window candidate. Like you've got these nice shop windows that you have very, very carefully and neatly arranged and you have not let us touch the goods. Uh, we're tired of being kept outside the shop, just looking in, uh, Donald Trump is that brick, right? He's blunt. He's ugly <laughs> more ways than one, uh, chuck him through the window and upset the kind of pristine little kingdom that the, in, in whatever form it takes, the kind of regime of political correctness has tried slowly slowly and apparently victoriously until last week uh to construct over the last two and a half decades um so to sum up that again rambling slightly because i'm not exactly sure how to grapple with all of all of this stuff um (laughs) i don't know how preeminent of an issue it was but i know concretely that for a lot of people they really were just sick of being diagnosed from afar by the experts and they wanted Mm -hmm. someone who was going to talk like them in whatever way that was and uh look after in some sense their interests rather than being concerned about abstract things like identity politics um nathan make make some sense of that for me (laughs) well what's interesting is you described one strand of sort of election post-mortem another strand that's out there is liberals basically doubling down on the you know Yes, Trump voters are racist, and moreover, right. they would have been at a greater economic advantage if they had, you know, 
voted Clinton in for these reasons. So the only reason that they could possibly vote for Trump is because of their racism. And again, I think that that, that double connotation of the noun racism mm-hmm. is certainly at play there. Uh, and, you know, a, a lack of awareness of audience like Jordan just talked about is at play there. What I find interesting about, you know, at, at this point, we're what, you know, two and a half weeks, no, week and a half. Gosh, seems like longer than that. It seems, it seems like months. <laughs> Since the election. Has, has it been four uh, years yet? So, yeah. yeah, there you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> um, is that, you know, once again, uh, the sort of responses that came out on Wednesday, November 9th, uh, were so inflected by these emotional, personal stories. Once again, you know, I was terrified. I was sad. I was heartbroken. I was grieving. I was, you know, so on and so forth. My eight-year-old um, scared. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How am I going to talk to my children about this? And you know, I mean, I, you know, my my first thought was, I mean, when Obama got reelected, what did you tell your kids about the kids who are dying in drone strikes? <laughs> you know, I mean, what you know, it's like I my my response is, you know, I, I made a point of not making either of the major party candidates a boogeyman for six months. So my kids said, hey, that candidate that dad doesn't like very much is president. And that was about the end of it. It wasn't, you know, he's he's coming into your school, you know, snatching your people up, supporting everybody. <laughs> so you better hide your kids, hide your wife, hide your kids. Uh, but, you know, oh. it's uh I know I'm joking about Trump stuff, and I'm going to get absolutely lit up online for this. But oh, I'm going to uh, I'm going to get you right here. Don't worry about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I I I think that you know to say that these people are racist once again is true in a certain register of vocabulary. If we mean that everyone who is part of a system and benefits from it, and who hasn't actively renounced the benefits of it, are racist. It's true in that case. It's not true in the case in, in the sense that most people mean when they say racist, uh, which is to say, you know, actively promoting the segregation of whites from everybody else, right? Most of these folks work with black people. Their kids go to school with Muslims. You know, uh, these folks, frankly, a lot of them, uh, maybe even most of them, depending on what polling data you looked at, are the ones who aren't wealthy enough to send their kids to private school. So their kids do have Muslim friends. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, the fact that we are treating that word as if it were univocal rather than polyvocal or univalent, polyvalent, I always switch those two pairs of terms up, is at least part of the problem here. So, Danny, go ahead and light me up because well, I probably have a it, It's a minor light. Uh, uh, so I, I, I do think, though, that – and I, I already I am annoyed by the term normalize. I feel like we were throwing, oh, yeah. don't normalize, don't normalize. No. And my, I think I tweeted this or something the other day. I'm like, he was normalized before he ran for president because of reality television. That's what normalized yeah, him, right? right? And so, like, let's not like, oh, yeah. pretend like he came out of nowhere, right? We've been oh, I was, preparing like, ourselves for this for decades. Yeah. I was watching right. an episode of Mystery Science Theater from 1990 last week, and they made a Donald Trump joke. <laughs> exactly. it, it blew my mind. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. But well, and then and then there's the you know just sheer domain name amusing irony of the fact that moveon.org now wants us not to move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, so well that said, like the whole like normalization rhetoric, I, I, I think is mm-hmm. a, a form of 
annoying vacant language. Um, but mm-hmm. um, I do think that. I guess maybe I'm making the normalization argument. He is not Mitt Romney, right? They're like the Breitbart mm-hmm. guy is in charge of the White House. One of his transition team members has just used Japanese internment camps as precedent for maybe having a Muslim re- uh, registry. I mean, this is mm-hmm. uncharted territory to a degree. And to just like claim that, oh, well, you know, everything's always been fine, so everything will always be fine. I, I don't know that, that that this could be a very special case. And, and I think that I don't want to underplay that. And that if you can consider mm-hmm. that lighting Gilmore up, that's as, that's as, that's as hot <laughs> as I'm going to make it, I suppose. Um, <laughs> I, and I, I thought this from the beginning. I was never a Hillary Clinton fan, of course, but um, – but the uh, uh, it was clear that where she was evil, it's in the way that we are already evil, right? You know, and so this whole lesser of two evils uh, rhetoric, uh, I, I felt fell a little flat to me because like she was clearly the status quo, and he was uh, like a, a unique kind of danger. And the problem is, and this kind of gets into my next point, I feel like um, the Democrats have overplayed that sort of um, pathos driven. Uh, fear mongering for many elections. I mean, Mitt Romney was mm-hmm. not going to tear the world down, right? Uh, mm-hmm. and, and 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 yet we treated him as if he was. And so, but uh, binders, yeah, binders full of women, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so, speaking of PC overreaction to something, yeah, yeah. And so, but that's the problem. And so, there's a bit of a boy who cried wolf uh, scenario going on there at the party mm-hmm. level. And I do think, well, can I, Oh, sorry. go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Jordan. Look, you just used a phrase that I actually had in mind. Uh, so, something that I'd like to briefly point at, um, something that again, part, part of the reason I'm having so such a hard time placing political correctness in our election context is, uh, again, all these kind of competing voices, uh, two that I want to point at, and I can send you links to these if you want to include them in the show notes are an 8,000-word essay from Slate Star Codex called You Are Still Crying Wolf, (laughs) in in which uh, I just discovered this the other day, but he actually goes through a lot of the kinds of things that we're talking about. And I honestly think makes some pretty good sense. It's Again, it's so long, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've skimmed through it. Uh, And Ross Douthat on Twitter, uh, I think yesterday, had a series of five or six tweets that linked to it and then kind of critiqued and pushed back against some of the things in the essay, both of which perspectives I thought had a lot to recommend them. Um, mm. But yeah, the, the wolf crying, uh, the, the Slate Star Codex writer actually directly equates that with, again, dog whistling. Yeah. Um, right. Anyway, anyway actually, I just, I, there's a National Review piece that just went live the morning that we're recording this, oh. uh, where, the, where the author, and I forget who the writer is, I should have written it down, uh, outlines probably half a dozen different liberal columnists who this week are saying this is the dawn of fascism and so on and so forth, who back <laughs> in January were saying ultimately a Trump presidency would be better than a Ted Cruz presidency. Right. <laughs> I remember is that. It, uh, is it, oh, it's Jonah Goldberg? That's the one. That's the one. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, I, yeah. And I, I think that Jamel Bowie actually going back to him, I think he tweeted a, a hate tweet at that article that Jordan was just talking about. I think I, cause I, when, <laughs> when you're talking about, it, I remembered it and I think it was from him. Uh, yeah, he I, I don't know what's going on. He's very upset and I'll, I'll let him I'll let him be upset. And so I'm, I'm fine with that. But but I, I really I really like him as a writer. Generally, I just feel like he's unable to he's very myopic about this topic right now and so mm-hmm. um and, and i probably align more with the the left that is 
critiquing the Hillary Clinton campaign more than the one that's trying to defend it. And so, um, but uh, the um, yeah. So I'm sorry to interrupt there, but that was uh, you just used a phrase that I had in mind at that exact moment. Yeah. No. No. It's good. Um, but the uh, the um, uh, the other thing I wanted to say about this is I do feel like whether in this election identity politics were turning people off. I don't know. Like, I felt like the Democratic National Convention was a bit of a pageant of diversity, right? And, and so, uh, and and I felt like there was a lot of virtue signaling going on there. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I do, I, whether that is was the thing that turned people off in this election, I don't know. What I do think, though, is there, there was kind of a loss of uh, control of the brand, let's say. And so I think that there are policies in the democratic platform that people who voted for Trump ostensibly like, but what, Mm -hmm. for whatever reason they have allowed themselves to be identified with the people who want to, uh, take away your nativity scenes in your small towns and not let make you sell wedding cakes to gay people. Right. They've let themselves be, um, branded in this way, largely through these kinds of, uh, politically correct agenda items and whether it's Mm -hmm. fair or whether it's accurate, is not really the point. Um, they let it. They they allowed themselves to be associated with with that group, right? And so, um, I mm-hmm. in that way, I think that's where they're culpable for uh, for that. And so, and the fact that they nominated somebody who was demonstrably weak as a candidate for twenty years, we knew this, <laughs> and they decided that they knew better than everybody else anyway. So, uh, hubris is what it was. And so, um, yeah. <clears throat> Any other thoughts? Well, on there's that, that kind of <laughs> go ahead. Well, there's that kind of arrogance toward the base or toward ordinary people. Again, like you know, you're you're gonna vote for Hillary and you're gonna like it because it's what we're offering you peons. You know, yeah, vote vote Hillary. You know, if you're not if you're not hashtag with her, you're a misogynist, <laughs> etc. Well, and somebody mm-hmm. mentioned voting uh, like against their own economic interests in this just just yeah. now. Uh, and so I think it's hilarious when I hear that when now Democrats who are lamenting Clinton's loss uh, are using, I can't believe these people voted that way. That's exactly, they were ridiculing that when mm-hmm. Hillary was beating Bernie Sanders in, <laughs> in these, uh, in like South Carolina, <laughs> mm-hmm. they were saying, well, that's how elections work. Duh. Like, you know, they're being very Samantha B <laughs> smug. Right. And, and, uh, and now that smugness isn't, uh, isn't there sadly or, Good, thankfully, who cares? Um, but um, the uh, the last thing I want to talk about is, is this is a little different. Uh, a couple of days ago, I did post a Frank Bruni editorial uh, that Jordan mentioned about this general topic on the show's Facebook page and asked for questions and comments uh, from listeners for this recording. And we had some actually serious action on that. We have like 16 or 18 comments on this already. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it would be cool for us to tackle some of the responses. Uh, do you guys mm-hmm. want to pick one or two to uh, to speak to and uh, and, and address? I, I, th- I want to thank everybody who, who, who did respond jay eldred a friend of the show drew vantland one of the founding members of sectarian review uh mark anthony tara thomas who i don't know uh chen boulet had a lot of posts um mm-hmm. it's uh it's, it's chen boulet's world and we're just all living in it right uh and uh, uh daryl wheeler and edward song from city of man uh and then just mm-hmm. last night uh julie uh, Bo, Bo Baucamp uh, posted some really thoughtful responses, and I want to thank them all for doing that and uh, and ask you guys to respond to uh, – pick something to respond to out of that group. Right. Am, am I at bat here, yeah. Jordan? Yeah, go on you start, Nathan. I'm at bat. Okay, okay, sorry. <laughs> I've, I've 
I want to uh, commend Ed Song's post. Uh, first of all, you know, if you don't listen to the City of Man already, you should start doing so. Um, back when, you know, some listeners were asking the network to have a politics show, I, I told uh, Farmer and Grubs, since we're the, you know, the smoke-filled back room who runs the Christian Humanist Radio <laughs> Network, that, uh, you know, if we were going to do it, first of all, I'd want someone who is a liberal because he's an evangelical and not in spite of the fact and second of all, I would want a panel of people who could discourse on John Rawls. Um, and then, you know, as as if they were in that smoke-filled back room spying on me, you know, I guess Ed Song is a Democrat, so he's big on the surveillance state. But, uh, you know, <laughs> they had this, you know, hour and 15-minute long conversation about John Rawls' a theory of justice within their first five episodes. So I said, okay, either, uh, you know, they're spying on me or, you know, an angel told them either way, there's a surveillance state going on, but <laughs> that that's in praise of Ed song. Um, Ed makes the point that, you know, certainly the branding of all Trump voters as racist is an excess. Uh, certainly it's something that the Dem- Democrat party could really think about and, you know, perhaps adjust the way that they, treat different audiences like like Jordan was talking about earlier. But he notes, and he, he rightly notes, that uh, there is a history and there is a practice within the upper levels of the Republican Party of using the, quote, Southern strategy, unquote, uh, to drum up specifically white working class votes. And part of that plays on this sense among a lot of the folks in the white working class, even folks who coach black kids on their baseball team, that the federal government is somehow giving the shaft to people who play by the rules and work for a living and handing money instead to people who are lazy and worthless and notably dark-skinned in these cities. And, you know, I mean, that is certainly within the purview of that larger definition of racism that we've been talking about this episode. Um, And frankly, I mean, it's, it's, it works. Uh, You know, I mean, you know, it's not a coincidence that, you know, even with the, you know, abandonment of, you know, the, I guess, you know, New England uh, aristocracy, with their abandonment, pardon me, of the Republican Party, the Republicans have actually gotten stronger over the last 40 years rather than weaker. So, I mean, you know, there's certainly something to that. And he also notes that, frankly, as Danny was noting earlier, the early days of the Trump transition uh, don't bode well for uh, a sort of normal status quo kind of nastiness in Washington. I mean, we do have people who have, you know, at the very least pandered to racists and anti-Semites uh, because, of course, the immediate objection is, well, you don't know what, what their personal motivations are. Uh, but in that, again, grad school definition of racism, these people are exhibit A and exhibit B of systemic racism. They're ne- they've now got Trump's ear in a way that the rest of the American public doesn't. So Ed Song notes rightly, uh, and I'll consider myself chastised here, Ed, if you're listening, uh, that there really is concern here to be had beyond the level of why can't people be nicer to each other. Mm-hmm. Jordan, which one you want to jump on? A uh, quick note on Ed's as well. Um, I, I don't – I will be – Frank, and that I don't know enough historically and academically about the Southern strategy to mm-hmm. to talk about it on a kind of top-down political level. But I, I can say that, um, kind of talking a little bit about the 
brick through the window attitude of some voters reacting against what they perceive as political correctness. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about uh, there is definitely speaking as one, there is a high level of resentment among Southerners as being treated as some kind of perennial problem that has to yeah. be solved. Uh, <laughs> that and and you know. And I and I honestly have to, like I said, I, the Southern strategy is something I still need to inform myself a lot more on as, as you know, the kind of smoke-filled room of the Republican Party kind of mm-hmm. phenomenon. But having heard it brought up in political discourse, particularly a lot this year, it is <laughs> it is a dog whistle, right? The Southerners are a problem. They are inherently racist. We just appeal – you know, the Republicans are just appealing to that base sentiment. But knowing knowing it from more of the opposite end of the spectrum from the bottom up. Uh, and again, to talk a little bit anecdotally, because life is complicated, uh, a lot of the people that I know to whom appeals against the welfare state would work um, come from places like my home county in the Appalachians, where the population is something like 95% white. Uh, mm-hmm. As of the last census, I think the African-American population of my home county was still in the, uh, just the double digits. Right. Uh, so when they when, – having heard lots and lots of this conversation, when they talk about people who are on welfare, people who are just you know, living off of the government and sitting back on their fat butts and not doing anything and just cashing their food stamps, they're talking about white trash. And you know, this, this is something Danny and I have kicked around as a future show topic and something I've been you know, kind of reading about a lot on a low level recently but not not even all of the concerns raised by something like the southern strategy can be easily mapped in a you know univocal way across all of the people to whom that is supposed to be dog whistling if if, if that makes any kind of sense mm-hmm. so uh, again I, I, i'd say it's a both and jordan because i mean yeah. I, oh, yeah, I, yeah, I've, yeah. Got, I've got a thing and i'm old enough to remember Right. Ronald Wiggins, Ronald Wiggins, he's a Wesley Wabbit. Uh, very quiet. <laughs> Ronald Reagan's welfare queen speech. Yes. Which was, I mean, decidedly racially tinted. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm I and I am conceding Ed's Ed's point. I'm just trying uh, to note that again, it is more potentially complicated than that. And more it, variables. It yeah, yeah. And it doesn't necessarily map racially, although it does often mm-hmm. um one other uh let me see if i can find this in the comment thread here uh, i'll just pick one to keep it short because uh, we, mm-hmm. we're, we're running a little long i think yeah um the the uh, julia's comment here that just popped up this morning um the weird inverse to political correctness uh talking about colin kaepernick in particular that um that and the general discussion of political correctness and uh you know the specialized vocabularies and the outrage at transgressing certain invisible boundaries Mm -hmm. um all of this is really chiming with um the book that i just happened to read a couple of months ago and that's um i'll I'll do the gilmore thing here jamie smith uh uh, is you are what you love in which he talks about you know restoring the heart of christian liturgy as you know in, in the virtue ethics kind of idea of habit or virtue being a habit, and all the many, many, many rival competing liturgies day in, day out. Uh, if you read that book, you cannot walk around a shopping mall the same way again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, worship spaces with side chapels and sacraments which are transacted between you and the, you know, specially in- initiated uh, priesthood, whether that's storekeepers or whatever. Um, I see a lot. I see a lot on both sides of this divide: the political correctness that we've been talking about. 
and what Julia is talking about on the right as essentially the idolization of politics um, for both for both sides. And, and there's been um, commendably, I think, a lot of pushback against this from some evangelical circles. Uh, um, uh, Russell Moore, uh, in his big speech to the first the first things dinner, uh, I, I think, talked about a little bit of this, which is that, you know, if you if you have made politics your idol, you're treating it again as a religious artifact. And the outrage with which leftists react when someone, you know, gets too heteronormative and they have transgressed the gods, the boundaries of the gods that look over, you know, capital O oppression trademark, uh, that kind of thing. Or on the right side, when someone like Colin Kaepernick refuses to participate in the rites that initiate the ritual of every Sunday afternoon, um, mm-hmm. you're getting essentially a religious outrage uh, when uh, because someone, whether it's a conservative who accidentally uses a potentially offensive term or it's a liberal who refuses to stand for the pledge of allegiance both of them have in some sense dishonored the gods and the gods demand our unity in the community um that that observation make any kind of sense oh yeah 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 and just to return for a moment to uh bloom and mcintyre i mean the first response on the part of conservatives generally and evangelicals more particularly is we're going to boycott the NFL. Yeah. So it's yeah. not, we're not, we're now going to, you know, take the time to have conversations who are with people who are boycotting this and, you know, try to help them to see the, the inherent value of national identity as, you know, something that is, you know, inherently good to a human existence. It's, well, I'm not going to watch their show. So screw you. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that that question also, and 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 Jordan's answer to it also uh, intersected a lot with Jay's comments as well um, mm-hmm. about sort of extend extending this to sort of the right as well. Uh, and there are so many. I want to I want to address all of them, and I know I can't. Uh, so just real quickly, <laughs> let me at least nod to a couple of them. Um, Daryl Wheeler had an interesting comment, kind of being critical of Bruni um, by saying, "Well." Isn't it hypocritical? I, I, I don't want to read. You can read, log on and read the whole comment yourself. But he's sort of wondering whether it's really authentic. If you know, I feel smug towards these people, I'm just going to behave more differently. And I think that opens up a really interesting existential question. Like, um, what, uh, is it possible to actually be authentic by working against your instincts, right? And I, I, I don't know. This is a question for Farmer, I feel like. That, that, that felt very <laughs> existential to me. Uh, and and I, I really appreciated it, though, uh, because it's sort of right up my alley. Um, and then and Chen Boulay, I, I, like one of his, I mean, he had several long posts on this, and they're, they're excellent. Uh, but uh, one of them, I think the fourth one that he wrote uh, is uh, at least numbered for, um, is talking mm-hmm. about Niebuhr's uh, Christ, and, Christ and culture taxonomy and wondering about the the conflict within evangelicalism uh, within Christianity let's just say the Christians who voted for Trump and versus the Christians who thought that was abhorrent right um, and he wonders mm-hmm. is there any possibility of political unity amongst Christians without unity on our approach to culture because he traces that distinction in sort of differing ideas of those te- those taxonomies, I thought that was really interesting, and that is a troubling moment we're at. Um, it, I for a long time have not felt like comfortable with 
identifying as evangelical um, because mm-hmm. I see it as a political term at this point more than anything else. I, I, I frankly, and at this point, I see that if you call yourself evangelical, you're identifying with this, uh, you know, uh, theocratic uh, governmental uh, conservatism. And, and so I, to me, I don't even see it as Christianity anymore. And so I, I have a really difficult time reconciling uh, within that label, at least, right? And so I, I'm, I know this conversation, uh, Chris Gertz, I know, has, has published about this uh, recently. And, and I am about, I have abandoned it for my own personal use uh, because, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I, I mean, I still remain Christian, obviously, but that, that label is beyond discomfort for me at this point, And I can't even associate with it. And so, uh, and I think it's, it, the sadness of that for me is in that question. And I think that that's really interesting. And then, um, the one I, I drew, uh, Vantland had the really interesting and your know, drills a philosopher, right? And so he has, uh, let me read this one. Cause I won't be able to, uh, paraphrase, uh, why do both wings broader than merely parties think that the other side controls the dominant ideology and discursive rules. The right Bingo. sees <laughs> the right <laughs> sees yep. The right sees the media as promoting political correctness and thought, word and deed, but the left sees the media as reinforcing sexist, nationalist, racist speech acts. Do we actually have a single dominant ideology um, or does our political polarization divide our discursive discursive form, formations as well? Uh, I think that's such a great question. And, um, and I think kind of the answer is inherent in the question for me. But mm-hmm. I, I think that to me, that's a, uh, um, um, a really great way to frame the irreconcilability of this of this conflict. I, I, I don't see as ever coming to unity over this conflict because we are mm-hmm. conceiving of the questions with different language. Um, I don't know. Well, here's the, here's the thing, though, Danny. I mean, if you say that it's irre- irreconcilable at the outset, is that not Alan Bloom's relativism already at play? I told you I like that book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's trying to make a case against it in favor of something other than relativism. <laughs> I know. Um, <laughs> I'm a pessimist. I'm a Clevelander. Okay, I I know how this. I know how the movie ends before it starts. And so, um, yeah. So this is. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I I applaud those of you who think there is hope uh, in the universe here, but uh, I am not one of those people at this moment. So, um, and, and that I was gonna. If I could speak just one word to that, Danny. Yeah. I, I think you bring up some good points here. Um, I, I I do think that this is one of those places, and 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 Michael and Farmer and I are both very conscientious about this, of pointing up the places where Christian colleges really do play a genuine role in how we step forward. Uh, one thing that I've noted is that very few people, when they tell their narratives, have a narrative of a conversation they've had trying to talk somebody who is likely to vote for Trump out of voting for Trump. Yeah. And I've done that a half dozen times over the last year. And I, I think that, you know, one of the places where there can be some kind of hope, even if, you know, you still want to be like Danny and be pessimistic, that's <laughs> all right. We still love Danny. I don't want to be like Danny. <laughs> is those places like the Christian college where you've got graduate school educated people interacting with the children of homeschooling evangelicals. Um, you know, I, I mean, if, if you think about sort of, you know, the other side, so to speak, you know, I think something like what's left of the labor union movement is another place where this could happen, where mm. you've got the super educated interacting with the otherwise educated 
in ways that actually allow for conversation rather than simply talking past each other, dog whistling, gaslighting, virtue signaling, whatever internet catchphrase you want to throw around. You can actually pose those Socratic questions that, uh, you know, uh, Jordan remembers from the Neil Bortz show. I actually don't remember any encounters like that, but that's probably just because my own memory is a negative one. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I really do think, and I, I want to present this as a counterweight to Danny here, that there are places in American culture where these conversations are already happening and can continue to happen. And that, you know, looking around for those places might be one of the practices that allows us to get beyond triumphalism and, you know, inconsolability towards something otherwise. Mm -hmm. I am perfectly willing to, um, consider the likelihood that it's my fault that I'm <laughs> you're right which Nathan. is more than you can say for a lot of the other people involved in the uh the PC versus anti-PC debate yeah. I mean oh, certainly. Going, going back to the safety pin thing you're just trying to signal that you're a good person who can be approached I mean that is not a reflective attitude yeah yeah mm. yeah yeah um, um yeah if I could chip in one more thing oh, yeah. really quick just 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 to go back to Daryl's comment um I I I'm not in you know, I, I've only read Frank Bruni a handful of times, but I'm pretty decidedly not in his camp on much of anything. But uh, I, I feel like he was relatively on point with this article, actually. And um, I, maybe it's just uh, down to a difference of perspective. I, I don't know where Daryl's coming from. But uh, when I read that that phrase that he objected to, you know, I plan to use greater care in how I talk to and about Americans more culturally conservative than I am, uh, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. It's a grown-up acknowledgment that we're messy and imperfect. Um Calling it grown up is is a little bit self congratulatory. I think that's a bit of a pat on his own back. But what <laughs> wow. I read, what I read, Bruni is doing there was say laying out a plan for himself to be polite, right? To to have an actual personal politeness and maybe take a step toward recreating the kind of organic politeness of actual people talking to each other rather than the artifice of political correctness. Um, that was how I took it. Uh, your mileage may vary, um, but I, that was a point I felt like I could actually support. Mm-hmm. Excellent, guys. Um, I have one recommendation. I don't know if you guys have any or not. And um, before we close out, uh, going back to the question about the Clinton era, uh, I think a really great book uh, that gets at the spirit of that in, in a very reflective inconclusive way is Philip Roth's The Human Stain. Uh, it's one of my f- two favorite books probably. And uh, and it it takes place, it's a, a, a very measured critique and, and kind of philosophical reflection about that moment, you know, from the left. Uh, so it isn't sort of like a, a partisan uh, attack on the, the moment of political correctness, but it considers it uh, in a very kind of human way. And, and I love that book. The movie is... Uh, uh, I hate that term meh, but the, I guess that's what it's for. But, um, so, but yeah, the, but the book is uh, quite amazing. And so uh, that's my recommendation to sort of feel your way through these, uh, through these subject matters. Do you guys have anything? It's okay if you go don't. Ahead, Nathan. <laughs> okay. Um, I'll go ahead and uh, recommend the book that we uh, read and talked about on the Christian Humanist podcast a few months ago, uh, Four Common Things by Jedediah Purdy. Uh, it is one of those books that uh, is decidedly anti-Clinton. It's coming out of the, you know, second Bill Clinton administration. Uh, but it's also got no patience for the sort of... Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and use the word. I mean, xenophobic 
small town attitude that would say anything from the city can't be good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a very nice, uh, deliberate, uh, and honestly, I mean, self-reflective look at what it means to live in a participatory political system. Um, and I'll, I'll just go ahead and say that, you know, I mean, uh, he's a person who, you know, was a big Bernie Sanders supporter, couldn't stand Clinton's, uh, was, you know, despondent when Clinton got the nomination. Uh, so, you know, he, he's not a person who has gone away, but, you know, this book from, I forget what it is, 17 years ago now is really a, a nice little read for, you know, uh, evangelicals like myself. I still, you know, carry around the title. I never decided I was going to be one, but the world did. Um, <laughs> to dig into because it offers a third way, if you will. Jordan, what do you got? Uh, I've just got, I mean, we've talked about a couple of articles and various other pieces. I'd recommend that cracked article for one perspective, uh, kind of one strain like you were talking about. And there are so many different postmortems. I'm not endorsing any of them because, again, I, I don't know what happened. It's kind of, uh, <laughs> it, it kind of, it kind of gives me a general existential angst about my profession as a historian. <laughs> you know, uh-huh. uh, looking at any topic in the past is, was it all this complicated? <laughs> but, uh, I'd recommend that cracked article. I'd recommend the Star Slate Codex one that I talked about, which is, again, I, I won't vouch for everything in it because it's so long and I haven't read the whole thing, but he, he raises some interesting points. Um, I would also actually recommend another episode of another podcast, which is Mad Dogs and Englishmen. Uh, it's a national review podcast, which will tell you something about its perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the hosts are uh, Charles C.W. Cook, who is um, actually a British native, but is um, – in the process of becoming an Americanized citizen, which to me always gives him a very, very interesting perspective um, on what's going on. And uh, Kevin Williamson, who is somewhat uh, slightly older and a native of Texas, but lives in Philadelphia and New York and even um, India for a long time. Uh, they come at things from a, a, a different perspective from me, but one that I can generally agree with. They're libertarians and I'm not. So again, uh, your mileage may vary. But they had a recent episode of their podcast about the angst expressed in the lead-up to the election and in the reaction to the election, particularly from the left. Uh, and they are doing this from a point of view of two libertarians talking to each other about the outsider. So, again, um, if you're not sympathetic to that tone, you know, uh, understand that going into it. I'm not trying to recommend something offensive here. But uh, I think they have some interesting and instructive things to say about the anxieties that some people are feeling um, and some of the relation of those anxieties to these kind of politically correct worries about uh, Trump or the base or whiteness or what have you. Um, that's, that's pretty much all I've got. I'd, I'd recommend that with the uh, caveats I issued. Yeah. Excellent work, guys. Um, I just want to say a couple of things closing. Uh, one is I do wish we'd gotten more uh, – I think there is something to be said for critiquing the small town mind, right? I, I think that we uh, there is a tendency at this moment to let them off the hook for small thinking, if not racism. Uh, and, and I wish we could have uh, taken some time uh, to get into issues like that. Maybe it'll be a follow-up future podcast. Another one of my pastor and friend, uh, Rob uh, Osborne, he suggested I do something about Chief Wahoo uh, as a Clevelander. Um, <laughs> and I think that would be an excellent uh, follow-up to this too, because I, I do feel like, 
um, that is uh, an abomination, frankly. And and uh, if you're interested in that topic, contact me, and I'll have you on the show to talk with me about it. Oh. Uh, so um, my wife and I, my wife and I were talking about the Redskins just this morning. So <laughs> yeah, I, I think I actually mentioned Wahoo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, it, to me, it's a, a puzzle as to how that thing still exists, still exists. But um, <laughs> uh, so thank you guys so much. This was a lot of fun. You guys like taught me a lot. I. I reflection on my own kind of uh, opinions and and feelings about things has happened and I think that's a, a that's a great thing. I really appreciate both of you guys and both of your uh your insights and, and knowledge. Um uh, yeah. Um we'll have you guys back multiple times as you know. So uh, I do I did think of a new Kafka quote to close on though. Uh the universe is full of hope but not for us. So <laughs> I think I blew that actually. I think it's the the is is in, is in full of endless amounts of hope, but not for us, right? So there is an end to that actually. So, 